Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see your smiling faces this morning. If you're new here, we are working our way for the next year and a half through the book of Luke. So you can begin to uh, turn there in chapter three is where we're going to be at. Uh, We'll launch from this morning. Um, When someone asks you the question, where are you from? How do you answer that? I think it depends on who's asking the question and and maybe even where you're at. Like if I'm overseas and someone says, hey, where are you from? I say, I'm an American. But if I, if I meet someone in town, uh, I, I tend to talk about, what, well, I grew up in Littleton, I went to Arapahoe High School, then I went up to Colorado State University, and, and then I went to Denver Seminary, and then, you know, this is my story. Where, where are you from? How do you, how do you answer that question when, when someone asks you, where are you from? My, my daughters don't like the question. They're um, what you would call... TCKs, they're third culture kids. That means that they, they grew up in, in such that they didn't share the culture that I grew up in because they were born in Japan, but they weren't, their, their family wasn't from Japan, so they don't really share the Japanese culture, and so they're this third culture. And so when they are asked, where are you from, having lived in Japan and grown up there and having lived in Czech Republic and gone to public schools there and then in the U.S., they, they hate the question. Because they're, they're, they're from everywhere and nowhere. There, there's no sense of truly home for them. That's part of just the cost of, of going overseas and, and doing that. But, but they don't like the question. When we, when we answer the question, we, we tend to answer it in, in the way that um, we just assume our, our Western individualistic lens. Well, well, I'm from this, I did this, but, but most of the world and really throughout world history and, and, and the biblical world, when you ask a question, where are you from? They wouldn't say a place. They would say, well, my dad was and his dad was and, and my grandparents were these people. But I asked you where you are from. Oh, I'm telling you where I'm from. I'm from this people. This would, this would be the, the biblical uh, lens that, that even as we come to our passage this morning, uh, we should start to take off, if we can, as much as we can, our, our Western individualistic lens and embrace the, the, the biblical world lens, of a collective lens. Where are you from? We, we do have this very individualistic kind of idea of where we're from. But even then, even then I think there is a longing, a longing for us to, to know our origin story, Right? Like as, as much as we are self-made men, in fact, our, our town has its own statue uh, at Main Street and Parker, the self-made man, uh, where the guy is carving himself out of bronze. As much as we claim that, there is still something in us that says, well, where are we from? Who's our people? This is why a billion-dollar industry has emerged in, with new technology, the, the, the home DNA test. Anyone ever take like a 20? You've taken that? Anyone else ever take? Okay, so we got a few. Um, Ancestry.com, 23andMe. Okay. Uh, any surprises? Any surprises on that? No? No? Okay. Well, well when you start to... Uh when you start to read, like I did this week, about these tests, uh, there, are, there, there starts to come to the surface a lot of surprises, good and bad. 
Um, and it doesn't take long. You, you can just Google uh, surprises from home DNA tests, and you'll get all sorts of articles. I'll just share three uh, short stories uh, uh, that I read this week. Uh, one, one story was a, about a man who, uh, growing up, he, he had a, a very wealthy uncle, that, and this uncle uh, was a, a CEO of a, a major finance firm in, on Wall Street, and every year this uncle would, would give this, uh, this nephew this, this incredible gifts and, and all this money and, and bankrolled him and put him through college. And he just thought, well, my uncle's wealthy. He's very generous. And so in his mid-40s, he decided to go and, and take this DNA, DNA test. And guess what? Maybe you've already figured out. It wasn't his uncle. It was his dad, which causes quite a scene at the next Thanksgiving when you realize, oh, you're not my dad, you're my dad, but you've been bankrolling, you're the brother of who I thought was my dad, and yeah, so a lot, a lot kind of begins to get shaken out in these DNA tests. Uh, one, one woman who thought she was uh, an Irish American, and, and all of her uh, uh, ancestors were from Ireland, she, she took the test and found uh, none of your ancestors were from Ireland. In fact, uh, you have Eastern European and even some Jewish descent, uh, and uh, she, it didn't make sense for her because they, they had this Irish family and this Irish name, and, and so they, they decided to do some more of these tests, and the whole family took the test, and as they did more and more tests, they discovered that her grandfather was switched at birth, went home with the wrong family. I mean, that, that causes some, some sense of identity uh, that, that's there as well. I mean, these stories on and on and on. Uh, the, the government of Belgium uh, did some DNA testing on the, 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 the descendants, the, the f- family members of Hitler. You know, Hitler who says, uh, we wouldn't need this clean, pure Aryan race. They found in Hitler's genealogy uh, some, some North African, some Middle Eastern, and even some Ashkenazi Jewish descent. And this is crazy, right? Uh, there, there's all sorts of surprises. And, and again, sometimes they're good surprises, but, but maybe some of us don't want to take the test because there's some, there's some interesting family history that get re- gets revealed in your origin story. Well, Luke chapter 3 is an origin story for Jesus. And Luke has some particular uh, purpose for this story. Now, if you're like me and you're reading the Bible uh, and you come across a, a long list of names that you don't know and you are hard to pronounce, uh, then, then you skim it and you move on to the next section. Let's get on to the story, right? And, and we think, oh, this is a weird spot that Luke just drops in a genealogy at, at the end of chapter 3. This seems kind of odd. But again, I, I, would, I would say, let's, well, because I'm preaching it, let's take some time and pause. In fact, I actually, full confession, I wanted to skip this. And Pastor Rick this week was like, no, we're preaching all of Luke. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> but it's just a bunch of names I don't know. And I can't pronounce. And, and as I look over the names, the, the, this genealogy starts in verse 23 and, and starts to roll down. But, but it is Jesus' origin story. And Luke actually has uh, some very particular purpose for unloading this here and now. And in fact, it, it not only reveals something really profound about Jesus, it's going to reveal something profound about who we are in this room. Like, like, this is not throwaway verses in your Bible. Even if we don't know most of the names, that there is something here. Even if we can only recognize maybe six to ten of the names, we, we can see Judah and Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and, 
and Noah. We, we can know some of those names, but, but for the most part, what, what is going on here? Again, this is Jesus' origin story. If you were to ask Jesus, where are you from? He, he, he would say, well, here's my lineage. Uh, the, this is important because if you go uh, to, uh, say, get a passport, they're going to want two forms of ID. They're going to say, hey, we're going to need your birth certificate and a government-issued ID. It was a way to uh, prove the, the credibility of who you are. Well, in Jesus' day, the way you did that was your lineage. And there were many would-be messiahs uh, leading up to Jesus and even after Jesus to say, I'm the messiah, or people said, he's the messiah. And the first point of identification would be, well, who's your parents? Because it has to come through a particular line. And so uh, th- th- that's part of this. This is giving messianic credibility. Uh, th- there's a purpose to this. It, for example, in, in Matthew's gospel, he starts with the genealogy. Uh, and, and his point in his whole gospel is that Jesus is the rightful heir of King David. So he actually starts with uh, Jesus, son of David. And then he goes from Abraham all the way to modern day. That's you start in the past and come to the, that this was Matthew's purpose, to show Jesus is the rightful king. Well, well, Luke has a different purpose. In fact, Luke does some different things. He, he does, unlike really anyone else in the ancient world, he, he starts from the, from the present and goes all the way to the past. And he doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes further. Maybe you've noticed this. He goes all the way to Adam. And there's a reason for that. And it's a very interesting reason, but, but let's think about these lives. I'm not going to read all these again because, um, again, most of them we wouldn't know. And, and a lot of them we don't know a lot of their story, but, but we do know some things. We know that they lived lives, like you and I lived lives. That, that means they had ups and downs. That, that means they had tragedies in their lives and triumphs. That means they loved and they lost they got angry and they sought forgiveness. They, 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 in many ways, they, they represent all of us. They, they, they lived their lives. We know some of the names and therefore from the Bible, we know some of their stories. We see uh, pictures of, uh, of incredible faith, just trusting God in, in the midst of just challenging, challenging circumstances. We see people that have uh, experiences, the promises and the presence and the power and the grace of God in their lives. We see times where they love deeply and, and we, they, they, they spur on our own love. Some of them wrote down some of their poetry of praise to God, and it still stirs on our praise today as we turn our book to uh, turn our Bibles to the book of Psalms. But we also know some more of their story when we think about their stories and uh, of David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Noah. We know that there were times where they they gave into doubt and they gave into fear and unbelief. There were times where they they didn't believe that God was really for them. There were times that they believed that they knew better. They, they knew that their, their, their path to happiness would, would be more fulfilling than what God had for them, or so they thought. That there was times where they uh, trusted in themselves and their own ability and their own thinking and their own power rather than the power of God. There was times when they sought their happiness apart from the happiness that God wanted for them. There were times when they drank too much alcohol got drunk and made terrible choices that would affect generations. There was times where they lied and deceived one another, other people, where they betrayed their brothers 
and their sisters. They betrayed their spouses. There was times where uh, they betrayed their own family and their own nation. There was times where they believed the lie that if they just had more stuff, then then they could uh, secure safety and security. And so they, they gave themselves over to greed. There was times where they they gave themselves to lust and they thought, if only I had that person sexually, then I would be fulfilled. And so they would betray their spouses, betray their God. They would give themselves to idolatry. There was times where their anger and their rage spilled over into murder and bloodshed of other image bearers. And these are the best of the list. These are the patriarchs. These are the heroes. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David. And so what is Luke doing putting this genealogy here? As he says, here's the genealogy of Jesus. It starts off, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old, verses 23. When he began his ministry, he was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And he rolls out. Why here, right now, or why now at, at age 30? Well, Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry. Up until this point, he has done no ministry. He's about 30 years old. He's about to begin his ministry. So one, he's showing his messianic credibility. But the other thing is, in this long list of names and, and all the other names, what, what do we know about them? At first glance, we don't know anything, but, but actually we do. We know a few things. One, they're all created in God's image and therefore have innate value from the imprint of their maker. We also know that they're all born into a broken and sinful world apart from Adam. And because of Adam, they're born into a broken and sinful world. So again, they have their ups and downs, their struggles, their sins. We know that they're all longing and needing a full rescue and redemption from God, from their sins uh, under the righteous wrath of God. And so they're longing for the Messiah to come. As Pastor Rick said this week in our study, this lineage is groaning for the thing that it will produce the Messiah. But at the end of the day, this is a line of sinners. This is a line who, of people who stand condemned. This is a long line all the way back to Adam of people that are separated by their sin from God. And then Luke says, here's the line of Jesus. What, what's going on there? It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm with them. I'm with them. He steps into the line. He takes on human flesh and he says, I'm with them. Jesus is identifying with sinners in his genealogy. But but notice there's something else that's very unique to Luke in all of the ancient world uh, and in every genealogy. uh, At the verse 38, he says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. But he doesn't stop there. The son of God. Luke wants to show us from the beginning and then throughout the rest of his gospel, we are about to witness the God-man. Truly man, truly God, who identifies with us as man and has the ability to rescue us as God. He is, he's got DNA. He says it's very earthly. In fact, this is what, what, what Luke is going to make uh, his point in, in, in the beginning of our passage as well, in the baptism of Jesus in verse 21. But let's give some context from, from last week. Remember, John the baptizer has come to uh, pave the way for the Messiah to come to us. In verse 3, it says, uh, 
He was uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, this is a recap from last week. And and then when they they start to wonder, hey, is John the Messiah? Look what John says in verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Like that's pretty... like. Like Luke is, I mean, John is, is getting the people ready. This is going to be crazy. Like I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I can't even touch his sandal. The Holy Spirit's going to come and baptize. There's going to be fire. It's amazing. So that's, with that in mind, that's why verse 21 is so weird. It's so understated. I mean, this is who we're waiting for. The guy who's going to baptize us with fire and the Spirit. And then look what verse 21 says. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. <laughs> but, but this is the one that you're preparing the way for. This is the one that, well, why is it so, so muted, so understated? I mean, the other gospels don't do that. I mean, in John's gospel, well, John's baptizing people. And then one day he sees Jesus walking up on the shore and, and John points to him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all the people are like, what? and they, they, they kind of go to it. Like it's, in a, it's a moment in John's gospel. I mean, even in Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes to get baptized and they have a little bit of an argument. John's like, no, 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 no. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, no, it's to fulfill all righteousness. But it's a moment. And, and here in Luke, Jesus says, when all the people were being baptized, all the people. So remember, God was, God was on the move through John the Baptist's ministry. People by the droves, thousands, uh, whole communities going out far into the desert. There's no King Super. There's no KFC. Like, like you pack your own stuff. You pack your own water. Uh, there's just something. Moved. There's this hunger and there's this longing. There's this burden that they feel and recognize. They're aware that there's this sin that's holding them down. And they maybe, just maybe, we go out to that baptizer guy. He's talking about repentance and sin. I feel the weight of my sin, that they're self-aware enough that they, they, they feel dirty. They, they feel the weight. And so they're going out to John and it says, when all the people are being baptized. Now, now again, picture the scene. Thousands and thousands are being baptized. This takes some time. They're being baptized in the Jordan River, but, but no doubt they're not just right on the side of the rushing river. They're probably in some sort of cove, right? Like where the water's a little bit calm. And they're, they're experiencing a, a turning from their sin. And they're experiencing this kind of metaphorical washing by going under the water and coming up. But, but again, think of the scene when thousands of people are doing it. I mean, have you ever seen any of these uh, pictures or videos from, the, uh, from India in the Ganges River as they're all doing their ceremonial st- cleaning? In the, it's disgusting. The water's terrible. I imagine this is what's happening here. Because every person that steps off the shore and steps into the mud, it kicks up a little bit more mud and a little bit more mire. And some, some trash gets stirred up. And then thousands upon thousands and thousands are, are coming in. And, and now it, it seems like more mud than water, I, I imagine. And Luke says, when all the people are being baptized, the one person who could stand off on the side on the shore and look down at all the sinners going in to be baptized, the one person would be Jesus. He had no need for repentance of sins. He had no need for washing. 
But he steps into the muck and the mire, knee-deep, waist-deep, stirred-up water, and it says, Jesus was baptized too. You come up out of the water more dirty than when you went in. What's going on here? Why is this important? Well, again, Luke is wanting to show us the same thing with the genealogy. Luke wants to show us that Jesus is so identifying with sinners in order to turn us into saints. He had to come and, and, and enter our world, take on our flesh, and get into our muck and our mire, our dirt, our trash, and say, I'm with you. I'm here with you. This is what's happening in the baptism. So when Jesus was baptized uh, too, and it says, and he was praying. Now, I, I told you a few weeks ago, look for some keywords. Look for prayer. Look for the Holy Spirit. Well, when these things show up, uh, things, things are, you buckle up. Things are about to happen. This is true in the, the, the sequel to the look, book of Luke, the book of Acts. When, when the church is praying, buckle up. Things are about to happen. So then he was praying and heaven was opened. Now this is interesting because we, we tend to think uh, heaven is some far off place up in the sky somewhere. Uh, and the Bible, the New Testament never would consider that heaven as some place we go off to. Heaven is more like, the best we could describe, a, a fourth dimension that we don't have eyes to see. So it's in our midst. This is why Jesus would come and say, the kingdom of heaven is here. And they're like, we're you don't have eyes to see. You don't have ears to hear. But every now and again in the Gospels, the veil between heaven and earth gets pulled open and the people that are around get to see and hear things that are right there in the spiritual world, in the heavenly world, and it gets open. It says heaven was open. This is kind of a apocalyptic language. And the Holy Spirit, again, now we've got prayer. We've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. So, so the, you've got the, the Son, you've got the Spirit, and it says, and a voice came from heaven. Listen to what the voice says, booming from heaven as the veil is pulled back. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This, is, this, this passage, I felt like this week is one of those like zip files. You know, when you, you download a zip file, and you're like, oh, it looks... But, but then you unpack it, and you're like, oh, there's so much more to it. This is a zip, theological zip file. I mean, we've got the Trinity. We've got the hypostatic union. How is Jesus truly God and truly man? We've got the Spirit, the Son, the Father. And it's all showing up in some way that is just blowing the people's minds. And, and the voice says, you, Jesus, you are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this is important because of the timing. Remember, Luke already told us what the timing is. When he was about 30, before he had begun his ministry, this is how it kicks off. So before Jesus has done anything, he hasn't healed anybody, he hasn't fed anybody, hasn't turned water into wine, uh, blind eyes haven't been opened, he hasn't even taught about the kingdom of heaven. Before he hasn't, has done anything, any performance... The, the voice of the Father says, you are my son. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. We, we tend to think our worth is based on what we do. Well, if I, if I perform, 
And, and, and we're all on this kind of hamster wheel. If I perform well enough, I can prove to the world and to the person in the mirror that I'm good enough, <laughs> that, that I'm worthy, that, that I have value and worth. Jesus never had that problem because he knew his identity from his father before he had done anything. The father says, I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. Well, you haven't done anything. Yeah, because my love for you is not based on your performance. It's not based on what you have done, are doing, or will do. It's based on my relationship with you. Jesus had this freedom. This is why Jesus had the most freedom of any person who ever lived. But again, this is a theological zip file. There is, there is this, this point that, that, that Luke is making, that Jesus has come to so identify with sinners in order to turn us into saints. He's, he's begun the ministry of substitution. So, so taking our place, going into our lineage, going into the, the river and being baptized for the repentance of sin, because everyone that John baptized, apart from Jesus, would need another baptism. They would need another washing. It was only temporary. They needed a perfect repentance and they needed a perfect baptism. And Jesus came to give that to us. So we've got the ministry of substitution happening now, now, it's not just substitutionary atonement, which is huge. That, that is where Jesus on the cross is uh, receiving the justified wrath of God against sinful humanity in our place for our sins and then giving us his righteousness. That's amazing doctrine. And we're going to celebrate that every week we come together. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. It's amazing. But this passage says there's more to that. It's not just that Jesus died in our place so that we would receive forgiveness. If that's all that was needed, Jesus could have died as a baby under King Herod. Hey, here's the perfect one. He's dead. That's not all we needed. We needed what, the, what theologians call the active obedience of Christ. So, so in Christ, uh, when, when Jesus substitutes for us, he doesn't just substitute his, with his death. He substitutes his whole life. 33 years of perfect obedience to the Father. 33 years of fulfilling every law of God. 33 years, that substitution now gets credited to us. It's as if God looking down on you says, man, you did it perfectly. <laughs> and you're like, well, I know I didn't, but I know Jesus did. This is because there's more. The gospel isn't just substitution. The gospel is also union with Christ. So, so when we go back to our passage, what happens? Well, well, what Luke is showing us is Jesus has come to so identify with us in order to uh, transform sinners into saints. He, whatever Jesus gets in Christ, you get. Now, this is huge because it starts off, he starts his ministry, and the first thing he gets is the Spirit of God. In Christ, you have the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that will empower Jesus' ministry for the next three years is the Spirit that has taken up residence in your life. We have the Spirit. We have the Spirit that is the co-creator of the cosmos. We have the Spirit where nothing is impossible. We have the Spirit of God because Jesus got the Spirit of God, and we're in Christ. We get the Spirit of God. So that, that's an amazing gift of the gospel. But there's more. It's like one of those late night infomercials. But there's more. There's more in this passage. Did you notice that? Well, if we get everything that Jesus got, then what else do we get in this passage? We get the affirmation of the Father. 
When the father says, you are my son, whom I love, whom I am well pleased in Christ. It's as if the father is saying to you this morning, you're my daughter, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased with. You're my son, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased with. So see, we think oh, man, if I perform, if I do enough religious things, if, I, if, I, if I'm good enough, then God will be pleased with me. No, in Christ, he is pleased with you regardless of what you've done. Regardless of what you're doing and regardless of what you will do, we are in Christ. We get the full benefits of being in Christ. And, and so my prayer for, for you this week is that you'd be just in awe of that. Like, like so many of us struggle with our self-worth. So many of us struggle with, man, does, am I worthy? And Jesus never struggled with that because he understood who he was in relationship to the Father. And, and my prayer for you is that, that you would just be free in that. Imagine how you might live differently if you were just totally confident, totally secure in God saying, I'm pleased with you. I'm so happy to be your heavenly Father. This is what we get in Christ. Uh, a couple saints from the past will help us out here. Charles Spurgeon, he, he says this, when you are clothed with the love of God and can say, my father loves me, then you can walk through the world as Christ did, calmly and peacefully. And wouldn't that be a nice gift to, to be able to be a people of God that just walks through this world calmly? And peacefully, because we know who we are in Christ. We know the Father says, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. Or, or Pastor Tim Keller, who passed away earlier this year, he says this, when you fully grasp the truth of God's love for you, it liberates you from the fear of failure. You can face every challenge with confidence, knowing that his love is greater than any of your mistakes. And if we understood that we have the Spirit of God and the love of God, then we would be the most fearless, most um, adventurous, most, most risk-taking people on the planet. We just need to know who we are in Christ. But, but again, let's not only read this through our individualistic lens. I've, I've just spent some time applying it to you individually, but, but, but Jesus came to rescue and redeem and bless a people and make a people that he has all sorts of wonderful imagery about in the rest of the New Testament, a people called the church, a people called the body of Christ, a people called his bride. When we gather as God's people, it's no small thing. When we gather as a people that are, are proclaiming, Jesus came to identify with us, sinners, in order to transform us into saints. So, so what that means is when we come into this room and the songs are sung, it's not just how am I feeling? Maybe I'll sing, maybe I won't. When the saints on your left are raising their voices, they have the righteousness of Christ. That should blow us away. That they have the full love and acceptance of God the Father. That should blow us away. I get to stand next to that person. They are holy and totally loved, and so are you. It should be this eager desire to be, oh, I get to be with the people that get everything Jesus gets. Oh, man, I want to lay my life down for these people. Because Jesus laid his life down for them and for us. Oh, that we might uh, not think little of what Jesus wants to do in his church. May we not think just of ourselves. Jesus came to, as God to transform us into a community of saints and that we would be a people in awe that, that people in this room are unified with Christ right now. 
Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you entered into our lineage. You entered into our muck and our mire. Jesus, to identify with us. Not that you needed cleansing, but we did. And so you came and received the perfect cleansing on our behalf, and you give that to us now. Lord, I pray if anyone has trusted in themselves, that today they would turn and trust in you and receive all the blessings and benefits of being in Christ. Lord, I pray for us that just struggle with belief and doubt and, and unbelief, that, that today we would just be reminded that you proclaim over us that we are your sons and daughters whom you love and whom you are well pleased with. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the saints on our left and our right that have been totally forgiven, given your righteousness, and empowered by your spirit. Lord, let us do more together than we could ever do on our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.